Well, turn with me now to uh, Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. And uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. Let's hear, hear God's word this morning. The Lord has been speaking to Abraham, and at the beginning of chapter 18, Moses tells us, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the, tent of the, in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servants. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servants. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent uh, to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent uh, tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. When Abraham drew near and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. 
to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, but who am I? But I, who am I? But I am, am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, suppose forty are found there. He answered, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be anger, angry, and I will, uh, I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, for the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and we pray once again that you'd help us by your spirit to understand and to learn from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a well-known uh, but strange story of Abraham. So in the, in the days when teachers were allowed to do such things, uh, I remember my uh, primary four teacher uh, reading this chapter to the class. Uh, teachers don't tend to do that now, but um, I remember it was a daily thing. Our, our primary school teacher would read us the Bible. And uh, I remember listening to this story as an eight-year-old, I think, and uh, I'm thinking, what a weird story. What an exhilarating story. An exciting story. Because uh, there's, there's quite a bit of weirdness about it. Don't you think? Um, after all, these three men uh, come into Abraham's life. And, and actually, as becomes clear, uh, this is an appearance of the Lord uh, to Abraham. Uh, and the phenomenon is described, but it's not explained for us. So we can speculate. People have speculated about the phenomenon, um, and we'll get to some of that in a minute. But uh, it is a strange story, isn't it? Three men appear, and uh, obviously it's the Lord who's amongst them. Um, remember that in chapter 17, previous chapter, God has been speaking to Abraham, and uh, he has promised ready that he's going to have a son by Sarah, not by Hagar, not by any of his servants, not anyone else, but Sarah. Sarah is going to have a son. And uh, uh, that son is going to be called Isaac, and he will appear in a year's time. So you look back to 17, uh, verse 21. Uh, 
God says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And you remember last week as we looked at this that uh, Abraham laughed at the idea. Uh, back in verse 17 of ch- uh, chapter 17, Abraham fell on his face, so he looks like he's worshipping. Uh, and he laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old, and Sarah, who's 90 years old, shall she bear a child? Uh, but God is adamant in a year's time, Sarah is going to have a child. Now the difficulties that Abram had with God's specific promise here um, highlighted for us something uh, about our own faith, about what faith in, in the, Lord, uh, the Lord God looks like, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. Um, we, can, we can know God. And we can see him as trustworthy. And we have that relationship to God, that covenantal bond that is formed with God by at God's instigation. And uh, we, we rest in it and we can live in it and we can love having that relationship to God. Uh, but sometimes God comes to us with specifics. With specifics. And we think to ourselves, how can God do that? How can, he do, make, how can he fulfill that promise? Or how can he bring this thing into our lives? What is God doing in these things? So we know him as trustworthy, but we can still have questions about how he's doing it. And so this is what we see in, in Abraham. An unwavering faith in God, as Romans chapter 4 tells us. And yet, in moments, laughing at the thought that uh, he, he and Sarah might have a child together at age 190. Um, well, I think by the end of chapter 17, we saw that uh, Abraham is trusting God for this promise. He's, he's obedient. He gets on with circumcision, circumcising all the males in the household as God has commanded. But it's possibly true that Sarah has not yet quite caught up with where Abraham is. Um, remember that in chapter 17, Though God has been talking about Sarah, it's, uh, he's been talking to Abraham about Sarah. Maybe Abraham has not been communicating very well with his wife. Sometimes that happens. <laughs> Husbands don't always communicate with their wives as they should. But uh, Sarah is not quite caught up. And she's, in a sense, she's, she still has her doubts and she's still uh, standing at a distance. Whereas uh, Abraham is now seen as this friend of God. And so we're going to see that contrast as we look at this chapter. So we're going to look at Abraham and Sarah. Our focus in what God is doing here. As ever, in all Old Testament narrative, even when God is not mentioned, the story is there to tell you what God is doing. And we should be always asking, what is God doing in this situation? How is God teaching us and training us? So the first thing to talk about is this idea of standing at a distance from God. Uh, so it's a strange story, isn't it? Abraham's resting in the heat of the day at the entrance to his tent. Uh, around midday, it's about the hottest part of the day. Um, and then out of the blue, there's three men suddenly appear before him. Uh, he looks up, and there they are. Uh, it's, it's, he doesn't see them approaching from afar. Uh, suddenly they're there. And maybe it's a bit of a surprise. Where did they come from? 
And, uh, and these men stay with Abraham for a bit and enjoy Abraham's hospitality. So who are those men? And it becomes clear that in verse 10 that the Lord is there with the men. So verse 10 says, um, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So was the Lord beside these three men? Was the Lord one of the three men? Was he all three of the three men? People speculated about all of these things. It's not explained. It's just described for us. There are three men. Abraham clearly talks to one of them. So in verse 3, he addresses one of them as, O Lord, Adonai, Master. Uh, This is a serious man he's he's addressing. Uh, So he thinks he's in in presence of uh, authority. Uh, But they, uh, they speak to uh, and they speak back to him. Do as you have said. They said. Do as you have said. And then suddenly in verse 10. The Lord is speaking. I, um, Yahweh is speaking to Abraham. So it's, it's an, an, an intriguing appearance of God. And it's one of several in the Bible. Where God appears in the form of something that's created. Uh, and, and then speaks from that created appearance. Uh, so some exa- a couple of examples. Uh, Moses, remember in Exodus chapter 3, and the burning bush. He sees a bush burning, but then strangely it doesn't seem to be burned up and he's curious. And he goes off and, uh, to see what's going on and he finds that God is there. The burning bush. Or when Israel is coming out of Egypt, how does God lead them? A pillar of cloud by fire? Uh, sorry, by day, <laughs> and a pillar of fire by night. So created things that indicate the presence of God. And God appears and he does great things through those created things. But the fact that it's, it's three men that appear has caused great excitement uh, in the Christian church. Uh, the great St. Augustine um, in his book uh, the, on, the, on the Trinity, written in probably in a 30-year twi- period from 400 to about 430, um, he believed that this was the Trinity appearing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three men uh, representing three persons of the Godhead. Now, not everybody has agreed with that. Who would dis- dare disagree with the great Augustine? Um, but, uh, and many Reformed theologians have not, not always agreed with that. Uh, and one of the reasons is, if you read on, uh, you'll see that uh, the two, two of the men are separated and go off to Sodom um, and leave Abraham with the Lord. So you see that there in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now there's, there's a range of possible interpretations of what's going on here, but... Um, it seems to suggest that the, the Lord, perhaps one of the men, in, the, in one of them, and who are the two others? Well, if you turn over into chapter 19, these two men are described in verse 1 as the two angels that came to Sodom in the evening. Uh, so it's possible that it's the Lord with two of his angels. 
in the, in the, in the appearance of uh, three men. Um, and to Abraham's eyes, this looks like a master and two servants. Hence, he addresses one of them as Lord Adonai in verse 3. So personally, I don't think we need to speculate about the Trinity. I don't honestly think that's what's relevant here. What we need to know here is God has manifested himself in the form of created things. It's a theophany, a theophany, an appearance of God, a manifestation of God in some created form uh, so that he could communicate himself and it's part of the, the many diverse ways that God has revealed himself uh, in Scripture. Now, I think at, at some point uh, early on, Abraham realized that he was in the presence of the Lord. He certainly knew at the beginning he was in the presence of greatness. And it's indicated by almost everything that he does. He, uh, in verse 2, he runs to them. Uh, He invites them to stay for a while to be refreshed in verses 3 and 4. He describes himself as their servant in verse 5. He gets Sarah to make some cakes in verse 6. He runs to the herd and kills a calf. Remember, in verse 5, he'd only offer bread, but actually he goes off and says, well, I've got to give them more than just bread. I've got to give them some meat. And so he kills one of the calves. And now he's preparing the meat. Um, The young man's preparing the meat. And then, as they're eating... Uh, What does Abraham do? Does he sit down with them? No, he stands. That's the posture of a servant, ready to do the the master's bidding. So I think Abraham realizes the significance, that there's significance to these men. Sarah, however, has, I think, a different attitude. So the Lord speaks in verse 10 and and repeats his promise that he made in the previous chapter. So verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah doesn't believe this. And uh, the the narrator here, Moses, uh, helpfully tells us about her condition that uh, she is old, advanced in years and the way of women has ceased with Sarah. Uh, And so, not surprisingly, she laughs about this, or she laughs to herself, at least. Uh, She thinks this is a preposterous idea. And on the face of it, it doesn't seem very different from Abraham's response in in the previous chapter. Abraham laughed as well, but uh, uh, there is an important difference. Here, Sarah is standing far off. She's hiding in the tent. She's at a distance. Abraham at least was bowing on his face before God in chapter 17. But Sarah's hiding. And Abraham brought the whole matter before God and talked it through with him. He he expressed his doubts before God and he explained uh, his doubts and made suggestions. And God still uh, engaged with him and and corrected him and said, no, no, this is what we're doing. Uh, You will have a son in a year's time. And Abraham learns to trust God for the specific promise. But Sarah doesn't seem to do that. She's hanging back. And the clue to the unbelief is 
is the way she responds to the fact that her laughing is found out. Uh, she denies it. She lies, basically. Uh, she's challenged about it and she says, I didn't laugh because she was afraid. She doubted God and she was afraid. She had a guilty conscience. When you're distant from God, and when you have lost hope in him, it's a small step to start lying about the state of your heart. I wonder if there's someone here today who hears the word of God and the promises that he offers to you. And you're lying to God about receiving them. You hear what he's saying. And you're looking like you're a faithful brother or sister. And yet in your heart of hearts, you're turning away from him and doubting him. How's your heart this morning before God? The Lord calls us all to come before him and lay before him all our thoughts, all our cares, all our concerns, and to wrestle with God. That's what faith looks like. It's wrestling with God over the things we don't understand and the things we find difficult instead of running away and hiding and laughing and lying about your own state. So we see unbelief leading to standing at a distance from God in Sarah. But let's move on and think about being a friend of God. Because thankfully, the Bible never leaves us in our sin. The Bible always presents to us uh, another option. Look at Abraham then, uh, who James called a friend of God. And you see, there is, there is hope for people who stand at a distance. You see, Sarah is not cast out, as it were. She is uh, gathered in, and she will believe. She will see the evidence of God's fulfilling his promises. And God can make people his friends. God can draw people to himself. This is what Jesus came to do, isn't it? When he was with his disciples, his 12 disciples in the upper room in John chapter 15, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You see, God wants to, to make known to us his heart, his, his purposes, his goals, and who he is. And he says, I want you to be my friend. To come in, come close. Be my friend. I'm your friend. Come and be my friend. So Abraham's a friend of God. And there's always hope for those who seem far away. And now we see God revealing something of his amazing character to Abraham. Abraham sets off with the Lord and these two angels. And the Lord says, maybe a strange thing in verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And 
Abram's right there. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's like Abram's listening in and God debating with himself about what to do. It's a bit like God saying, you know, I do, I'm not sure whether I should tell you this. <laughs> um, but in saying that, isn't he? He's drawing Abraham into his confidence. He's saying, come close, Abraham. I want to tell you something. And it's something that's going to be uh, amazing and wonderful and glorious. And he's treating Abraham as a friend. And uh, See, Abraham has this place in God's purposes. So look at verse 19. He says, I have chosen him, Abraham. He's still speaking in the third person as though Abraham's not there. I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after me to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham's chosen. And as a chosen man, he's been given the commands of God. And he has given the promises of God. He's going to fulfill all his promises that he's made. And if you want to summarize, a, a pithy summary of what God has just done here, it's through this. Grace, law, and gospel. Grace, law, and gospel. Grace, because Abraham has been chosen for no other reason than that God has chosen him. That's grace. He didn't qualify. God came sovereignly into his life and chose him for a purpose. And that's true of every Christian who has been saved by the grace of God. You didn't qualify. You didn't earn anything. You didn't have some characteristic that God thought was admirable and therefore, yeah, I'll have him. Not even your faith. You didn't even see that. By grace, when you are a sinner, he said, I choose them. So grace comes. Law comes. And he has given commands to, uh, by which his chosen ones are to live. And by which they are to teach their children. So law, command. And gospel. A reference, I think, to the fulfillment of the good news that is yet to be fulfilled. See, this is the pattern of the Christian life. Some people think only in terms of law and gospel. Um, law condemns me to hell, but the gospel of Jesus Christ saves. But actually, a more accurate picture is this, that grace chooses me, even though I'm a sinner. Uh, God gives me a, his law as a way to live, not as a way of qualifying for heaven, uh, but as a way to live as a heaven-bound child of God. You're already heaven-bound, so here's how you live. And it's through that means that God brings about his ultimate purposes in Christ Jesus. He always uses means. He works through people uh, doing as has been commanded. That's true of Abraham, isn't it? Uh, imagine if Abraham said, no, I don't want to go, go to that land you're choos- you've chosen for me. And just plonked himself down. That would be the end of this Bible story, wouldn't it? be a short Bible. <laughs> but it didn't happen, did it? God works through people, obeying him, doing the things. 
He's not limited to that. He can do things outside of all of that. But most often, he works through means. So grace, law, gospel, is how God works out his purposes, redemptive purposes. And now God, you see, wants to draw Abraham, this chosen one, into his confidence and confide his heart and his mind with Abraham. What a glorious God we have. That he wants to share himself with us. To share his mind. To share his heart with us. Now here's the issue that's uh, arisen. Uh, And it's a practical one for Sodom. There's an outcry against Sodom because of the sin there. Verse uh, 20. The Lord is going to investigate and and what's clearly in view here is, 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 is whether or not God should act now in justice. Should he act right now? I mean, he, does, he, he may act right now, but, but should he? And what's interesting here is, is that you have the Lord acting mercifully in a response to an outcry against sin and oppression. So clearly something's going terribly wrong in Sodom, and we'll come to that next, next chapter. Uh, but something's going terribly wrong in Sodom, and an outcry has risen up. The voices have been raised to heaven. A terrible thing is happening. Terrible things are happening. As always happens when sin is allowed to go rampant. And the Lord comes in compassion, with concern for the, those who are raising up uh, this voice. And he comes and uh, mercifully wants to find out more. And God is showing us here that judgment is necessary alongside mercy. Sometimes we think these things are mutually exclusive. Judgment, that judgment, God's judgment cannot be merciful, nor mercy can mercy can, mercy cannot come from judgment. But when you've got people crying out under the weight of sin sin of others. Judgment is an act of mercy. See? That's why we'll rejoice in the ultimate judgment of God in the end. That's why Christians will rejoice in the, the justice of God. One day all the sin will stop. One day God will come in judgment and stop the suffering and oppression. And this leads to a conversation between Abraham and God. Here's God pulling Abraham into his confidence. And Abraham has this conversation. And it's a, you know, he's, he's a bit nervous about it, isn't he? About, well, how many righteous people does there need to be in the city before you'll, you'll stay your hand? What if there's 50 righteous people in there? How can it be right? Sweep away the city of those 50 righteous people. Abraham doesn't believe God would do such a thing. And indeed God confirms that he would not. And so the conversation repeats. What if there's 45? A little bit more, a bit more of a step. Or what about 40? No, I won't do that. Or 30? Or 20? Oh Lord. What if there's only 10? Maybe he's thinking about Lot, his nephew, who's gone off to Sodom. He thinks, what if there's only ten? 
will you still judge? And God says, no, I won't. Now, what's happening here? What's the Lord doing with Abraham? And clearly the issue is, is, is highlighting is, is God's justice. Surely shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, verse 15. But Abraham is trying to figure out how God can be just if there are righteous people in the city. Now to us, in our individualistic mindset in the West, we might say, why can't God go down, pick out the righteous people, lead them away, and then judge those who remain? That's not the way that the people of the Bible thought. They thought corporately. They thought in terms of families, of clans, of cities. And the Lord thinks that way too. Remember that story of Joshua uh, when he was leading the people into Canaan to take the land and the campaign was going fine. Jericho's walls fell down. But it all came to a grinding halt in Ai in defeat. Why? Because one man Sinned, Achan sinned, and kept the plunder for himself. He had done what God had forbidden, and suddenly the whole thing came to a juddering halt. And people suffered because of the sins of one man. So the sin of one person can affect the whole community, and the whole community can deal with it, but the right, what about the Righteous. Can it work the other way? Can the righteousness of a few lead to the sparing of many? And how few does it need to be before the many can be spared? And God says, that's enough. So the Lord allows the number to drop and to drop and to drop. From 50 down to 10. And at that point, the Lord then goes on his way. And we're left thinking, could you have been lower <laughs> if there's one righteous man? Could you have just done that? Well, as we'll see in chapter 19, Sodom actually isn't spared in the end. There were not ten righteous people. Uh, there were not ten people who were friends with God. But it does, this whole process, it does teach us something about the way that God's justice can work. If it can be brought down to one righteous man, then a whole people could be saved. One righteous man, then a whole people could be saved. And this is, of course, anticipating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ, the head and representative of a people he has chosen for himself, who are all sinners, because of this one man, all these people are spared the judgment of God. You and I, if we are Christians today, are spared the judgment of God through Jesus Christ, through one righteous man. Abraham shows a a God-given desire for the justice of God. But it also, perhaps surprisingly, leads us to a desire for the sparing of a city because of a righteous few. This is the tension, isn't it? 
We want to see the judgment of God, and yet we want to see people saved and gathered into the righteous. We care about justice, and we hate the sin that we see around us. And we hear the cries of suffering. We see it in our society. All the disasters that are happening that the world turns its, its eyes from. But we know that this world can be spared through one righteous man if people will come to him. This is one righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your provision for us in Christ. Thank you for your justice and your mercy. Your your word always holds out for us a hope of the gospel. Wherever we look in the Bible, we see the same characteristics of our God working in grace, law and gospel and all to your glory Amen